Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Reverb.com founder and CEO, David Kalt. First of all, do you know about TikTok? TikTok TikTok.com. The website that's really, really big with tweens and teens. And this is all over the world. This is a company that's owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. And TikTok is based in Los Angeles, but it has a Chinese counterpart called Daolin. This is all about short-form video and live streaming. And these streams are really short. They're between 3 and 15 seconds, or you can loop them between 3 and 60 seconds. So it's so huge that... There are 500 million users. There are 1 billion app downloads so far. This app has topped the iTunes App Store for more than a year. Yeah, you probably don't know about it. You probably haven't heard about it unless you have kids. That being said, in the United States, there's only about 9% of the total users. So it's not as popular as you might think here yet. That being said, it's really growing all over the world. Now, here's the thing. It's mostly for kids to dance and to sing against tracks or lip sync. And it turns out, what do they use? They use hit music and mostly from the major labels. So the major labels are pretty upset because what's happening is they're not getting paid enough, or at least they don't feel that they're getting paid enough. Now, TikTok is coming back at them and they're saying, Well, wait a second, these are only short little pieces. And not only that, it's not like users can go and select the song just based on the song. No, it's about the performance. It's about the user-generated content. So now we're in a big war, and major labels are threatening with pulling their catalogs. So we'll see what happens here. This should be interesting because this is exploding. If you don't know about this app, go check it out. It's not something for anybody over about the age of 19, but that being said, it's huge right now and it's getting bigger. And who knows, this may be the next new big social platform. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, are you a guitar or bass player that sings in a band? So in other words, you're playing guitar and bass and you're singing at the same time on stage. I used to do it. Boy, if I had to do it now, I'd have a hard time. But that being said, I just read this great article on Music Radar. If you're not hip to musicradar.com, go check it out. It's an English site, but they have some great material on there all the time. And what I just read was something by a singing coach named Peter Strobel, and he's the singing coach of the stars. Among others have been Eddie and Wolfgang Van Halen. Anyway, he has a number of different suggestions for you 
if you are a singing guitar and bass player. And one of the big things is to integrate your singing with your instrument. So in other words, if you're practicing your singing, you should have your instrument with you and you should be practicing playing and singing at the same time. Usually what we do is we separate those. And then it's a little bit harder to put it together later. But he suggests that this is actually part of your routine if you're going to be singing and playing at the same time, if you don't integrate that, in fact, you won't be breathing properly. So speaking of that, he suggests that mic position is really important. So we all know what Lemmy looks like, right? On stage with the microphone way above him and him singing up into it. Apparently that's really bad. And instead what you should do is have the mic so you're looking down it. You look down the barrel of the mic so you can see the floor or audience six to eight feet away. And that's the proper mic position in order to breathe properly. Now posture is also important apparently because you have a seven to 10 pound instrument around your neck, which is the equivalent of a gallon of water. Just imagine going to the store and getting a gallon of water and having it attached to a clothesline around your neck. Well, One of the big problems here is your posture is extremely important because if you're leaning forward, the instrument feels heavier than it is because it's suspended in midair and you can't breathe properly as a result. So your posture is really important and a lot of that depends on where the mic is positioned. Here's something I thought was very interesting. There's no correct way to scream. You just have to accept the fact that you're damaging your voice one way or the other. There's no safe way to sing metal. He also says that those sprays and tea and honey and all those things the singers usually use don't really help. And in fact, it might make you feel good, but really the only thing that helps is warming up properly, doing your exercises, and practicing good posture and good breathing. If you do all those things, you shouldn't have a problem singing and singing for long periods of time. I've seen this for myself, as a matter of fact. I've seen singers that would blow themselves out in no time. They'd be great, but they'd only be great for a short period of time. When, on the other hand, you have some that, in fact, are a little trained, and they could just go all day and all night with no problem. So I encourage you, if you're a guitar or bass player that sings, Go and read this article by Peter Strobel on Music Radar. It's really great, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. My guest today is David Kalt, who launched the super popular gear site Reverb.com in 2013 after growing frustrated with the process of buying and selling guitars on eBay. To get started, David raised more than $47 million in funding from investors like Cheap Tricks' Rick Nielsen and country star Brad Paisley, to tech stars like Eric Reese and Mac Lefgen. Since then, Reverb has sold more than $1 billion worth of new and used instruments on the platform. In that time, David has worked with artists ranging from Foo Fighters' Dave Grohl to Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong to get gear into the hands of fans. In the interview, we talked about how he made the pivot from being a studio engineer to the business world, integrating Reverb with local music stores, an overview of Reverb's customers and gear, and much, much more. I spoke with David via phone from his home in Chicago. You were an engineer, a recording engineer first, right? That's my core. It was my core passion. I grew up in the 70s 
listening to, you know, classic rock from Zeppelin. Actually, my peak years were more like Clash and Police and, you know, reggae, Bob Marley and um, Chicago blues. I wanted to produce records. And uh, so I, I went out to L.A. while still in college. I spent some time at the Sunset Sound Factory over on Selma and Vine yeah. and a little bit of time over on, uh, on Sunset at Sunset Sound. And then I, um, I moved back to Chicago and I worked in a studio called Chicago Tracks Recording. It was known for early house music and then also Al Jorgensen Ministry. The band Ministry was a house band and I did a lot of jingle work. After doing that for two years, I came to the conclusion I uh, wasn't very good at it and I wasn't going to be able to make a living doing it. And I really pivoted uh, into uh, a career in software and technology. Okay, so you came to that conclusion. That's sometimes very painful when that happens. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've done it several times in my career where I've pivoted, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you right now, because it, it was a result of a pivot. How long did it take you to get going in the business world then? Because sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. So how, how did that happen? I thought you wanted to talk about um, how, when I realized how I realized I wasn't going to be a great recording engineer. Because well, that's good too. Yeah, sure, we can go there. <laughs> because as I'm sort of reliving it, I remember sitting in sessions. I remember being an assistant engineer and then kind of being uh, at the helm for some of my own sessions. I remember watching the engineers that I was admiring. And I just watched that level of detail of, you know, of really just EQing a kick drum or, you know, really dialing in that vocal mic. And I realized I didn't have that attention to detail. While I love music and I could appreciate the Steely Dan recordings of the 70s, the obsessiveness to do another track and another track and another track and dialing, dialing, I realized I just didn't have that. I didn't have it, and I still had an appreciation for how great those phenomenal recordings can be when you do have that, but I didn't have that obsessiveness. And when I realized that, I realized I would be good with it. I'd be good with this dream that I had, that I had for, let's say, five or seven years of my teen years and, and early 20s, that I was good with it. So it was actually a relatively easy pivot. It wasn't something that I held on to as like an extreme hobby that I needed to fulfill. I found my outlet in music. Now, the interesting thing is I've built my whole career around correlations between music, finance, and coding. And there's this theme of just mathematical problem solving, you know, creating puzzles that I really see. And, you know, not all people in finance have it and not all coders are musicians and not all musicians are good at coding. But I've seen that um, those three themes Music, finance, and coding in my life have been very helpful. So it, it almost like was an evolution of the sort of joy I got out of music. I was able to translate that into um, learning to, to code and, and then building businesses and, and even in the world of finance and, and marketplace world. You know, it's interesting you should say that because I've noticed that on another level where just having a musical background and being good at that translates in some way to something else and the one thing that comes to mind especially is uh video editing where there's so many editors that are musicians that just know they can feel where the tempo the pulse is 
and they naturally go there where people that don't have that, they struggle to find it. So, I mean, that's, that's just one area I can think of, but it, it just, music gives you a discipline that, that's transferable to other places. I don't think people understand that or realize it. Yeah. No, that's so true. And you can apply those passions and that discipline for music and what, you know, like as a musician who listens to music, you have an appreciation for uh, the art. And as a business person who uses music for inspiration, yeah. I have uh, an appreciation for the power of music uh, in all of our lives. So it's cool stuff. So your first software company was what? Client base? Is that it? Yeah. The product was called Client Base. This is in the 90s. It was in the travel industry. And it was um, like what today we would call a CRM, Customer Relationship Management. It was a basic customer database platform for marketing like American Express Travel and all these big travel companies would use my software to get airline reservation information about customers and then to be able to market them trips and vacations. This is like early internet, you know, early email, a lot of still direct mail. And that was my product in sort of 93. I ended up selling the company in 1998. And how did Reverb come about? And I can see now that, that already there's some correlation between Reverb and what you just did there in ClientBase. Yeah. After ClientBase, then I, I left the travel world and I got into the, the world of trading, financial markets, particularly options trading. Options trading is a unique thing because it's, it's this like very math puzzle oriented things where it's not like a zero sum game. There's lots of different variations on how people can invest and hedge and do different things. And I was very curious about that. It's just like, it's that same obsessiveness about making music where there's a level of complexity there. And what I did is the theme between my businesses is usually it's, it starts with a pain point. So here I was, after I sold my first business, I, I had a little bit of money and I started to dabble in the markets. And I was using Charles Schwab. As I was trying to trade options doing that, I was experiencing a lot of pain. And when you experience pain, it usually forces entrepreneurs to say, well, what am I going to do about it? Next thing I know, a year or two later, me and a couple of partners, we started an online brokerage firm that ultimately was sold to Schwab 10 years later. We took it public called Options Express that basically was my frustration of how to build a better experience for people that wanted to trade stocks and options. So that was what actually gave me the opportunity to um, then leave that world of finance, which I actually enjoyed. I had a great career. I did extremely well for myself, but I also loved building product. I loved solving that uh, pain point. And then I said, I'm going to get into trading. It just happens to be guitars and <laughs> instruments. And I'm going to do that through a retail business. So I bought the Chicago Music Exchange. And through that, it wasn't that I experienced the pain until I was a couple of years into it. And I really started to experience the pain, not just personally, but from a lot of other peer musicians and dealers in the industry of buying and selling musical equipment. And that was the genesis for Reverb back in 2013. So you already had the skills to put that together. Yeah. So that makes it easier. But that being said, one of the hardest things when you're doing a new business, and, and I always think this is a problem with entrepreneurs, is they think about how to develop a product and they forget they have to market it. Yeah. So you have to let people know that it's there. What, what did you do to, to actually get that in front of people? That's a really good question. Part of the secret sauce with 
Reverb was having this relationship with this retail business gave me real insights into both the challenges and the opportunities of buying and selling, let's just say guitars for simplicity, even though Reverb sells much more than guitars, is where are the pain points? So there are a couple pain points. One, eBay being around for around 15 years at the time and had been really a dominant player in musical instruments early in the early 2000s as eBay grew, it was a big category for them. And they hadn't really kept up with the vertical or giving it any special attention. So the way I like to market is I like to assess the current environment and figure out where those pain points are and build a product that just brings a smile to people's face, right? So Reverb, from the beginning, I, I really felt like I was addressing some of the key areas. So it was a platform for musicians by musicians. The inventory, because of my relationship with Chicago Music Exchange and I had this other business, I could set a really high bar in terms of standards of what it meant to photograph, what it meant to describe your listing, what it meant to get a return. And by having that high bar, it made it so that other sellers and other dealers, and we were really able to get the cream of the crop in the beginning and a really quality, affordable, reasonably priced inventory, which uh, automatically started through Google and search and spending money on, on, on Google search, allowed us to get to buyers because we were really deliberate about the inventory and really deliberate about how it was presented and how it was um, ultimately transacted. I'll tell you how I found out about Reverb. And it's very much what you're just talking about now. I would do a search for whatever, 57 Strat, for whatever reason I need it. I need a picture. And I started to see these pictures pop up, Reverb.com, Reverb, and they were beautiful pictures. They were wonderful examples of the particular version that I was looking for. And it was over and over and over. And it's like all these great photos are coming from one place. And that's what really got my attention. And still, I love going on Reverb just to look at the pictures. It's like, okay, what kind of new, what kind of old gear that I haven't seen before or haven't thought about in years is going to pop up and there's going to be a beautiful example of it. <laughs> so, that, I mean, it, it worked. It worked for me. And, and the other element that we ultimately added that, that made us very distinct from uh, eBay, Craigslist, Sweetwater, any of the other places where musicians go is we invested heavily in content, both pricing data, gear videos, demos, instructional video. We figured out how to weave that into the shopping experience so that we were at both educating and inspiring people about gear, even if they weren't ready to purchase, kind of helping um, whet their appetite, get them excited, be a resource for them. And let them know that when they were ready, that Reverb had the selection, Reverb had interesting inventory. The other thing that we focused on is I realized owning a guitar store that if I just had all the new Fenders and Gibsons and Martins and Ludwig drum sets, I didn't look that different than a guitar center. It's that used inventory that gets people excited and come back to the store and looking for something maybe they grew up playing something uh, one of their bandmates had or something that has some nostalgia uh, about the past. It doesn't just need to be vintage. I mean, it could be, it could be a Stevie Ray Vaughan reissue from 2003, whatever it is. Um, the idea of that hunt and that discovery 
I learned that in the store experience. And I, as a, as a traveling business person for the last 30 years, any city I was in, I would always go to the guitar stores. And I realized if I could create that experience online, that discovery of helping you find that unique, special thing, um, I could build a, a really thriving business around that. And I realized that the other thing I want to really emphasize, which I think is a secret sauce that we're working on, is that as a dealer, I realized that musicians were kind of getting screwed and that the difference between the wholesale and the retail pricing on used was pretty dramatic. And people would go back to their dealer, they'd sell it, they'd get 50 cents on the dollar and the dealer would mark it up 100 points. The dealer would sit and look at it on a hook or on a shelf for three months, ultimately discount it 20%. And it was just such an, uh, a poor use of capital. So when we launched Reverb, I really worked hard with both Chicago Music Exchange and other dealers and trying to get people to basically offer musicians more than they would typically offer them in a store setting. So what we've done over time, now that we're six years into it, we have dramatically improved the price that a musician gets for their gear when they sell it directly on Reverb and what they're able to pay for that next purchase. And we've made that bid-ask spread because I come from the trading finance world. We've made that really tight. So in essence, we're trying to remove the risk, whether you're buying a U87 microphone or that Stevie Ray Vaughan reissued guitar on Reverb. The price is pretty darn close to the difference between if you're a buyer or a seller is pretty darn like tight. And that means that if you don't love it, you can go sell it on Reverb again. And there's a buyer ready to happen. And we're still in that process in Europe and Japan and trying to like democratize the pricing. As we do that, used gear will compete with new gear in ways that it just hasn't before. And that's what I'm most excited about, about all the 50 years of instruments that have been created from U.S. to Japan, great crafted instruments and electronics and microphones and pro audio and keyboards and synthesizers and drum machines and bringing all those products fairly priced to musicians, um, that, that really excites us. Now, you have a unique perspective because you're part of online sales of instruments and the music store experience that you had. And that being said, music stores seem to be in trouble these days. Brick and mortar stores seem to be in trouble. And I look at them and I think, okay, I can get why some of them are in trouble. I can get why the ones that are surviving are surviving. But that being said, it, it saddens me that the local music store isn't there the way it used to be because that was an integral experience in growing up and actually getting into the music business and learning about the music business by going to your local music store, even when you couldn't buy anything. And, and and now I see, I see the same people doing that going to Reverb. I know. They're not going to buy something, but they're going to go and they're going to look around. But it's still the local music store is in trouble. So how do you feel about that? What, what do you see as the problem with the local music store? A big part of Reverb's emphasis actually is the local music store. So we really feel like we're partners with, you know, thousands of people who make a living buying and selling new and used instruments. And they sell on Reverb. We keep our fees really low to make it very affordable. So what we've tried to do is we actually partner with dealers and we help them do what I more what we call omni-channel. Like the music shop that's going to be around in the next five years has to be good at selling online and offline. They have to be able to be able to like, for instance, what Reverb helps a lot of dealers do 
it helps them buy used inventory from their customers that they want to go sell them new inventory. They can move that inventory in hours or days on Reverb as opposed to it sitting on a hook. So we become a resource for them to be able to be more aggressive on being able to offer their customers buy-ins. We also allow them to compete with Guitar Center and Sweetwater and Musicians Friend by selling online and doing it really easy and affordable. We have tons of integrations. We have a product called Reverb Sites, which helps them build their own website. So the idea that you're just a music store and you're waiting for walk-in business, yes, that's, that's a dying breed and, and those stores will not exist. But the idea that there's a local store in St. Louis and Chicago and Detroit and Tulsa and Memphis, that there'll be plenty of them. And they just have to be really good at basically servicing their customers online. Now, the trick with being a good online music shop is the same skills it takes to be a good physical one. You have to provide real-time customer support. You have to be able to answer people's questions online, just as if they're in the store. Can't wait 24 hours. You have to be able to ship things and take returns and do all the things that you do in a store. You just have to have to learn to do that online. And, and trust me, customers are very, very savvy. And there are lots and lots of dealers that are stepping up to the plate and servicing both the online and the physical customer and doing it in a hybrid way. There are plenty of thriving stores that have adopted this dual strategy. So I'm encouraged. I'm very encouraged by that. I have a customer relations story that I think you'll, you'll appreciate. When I was uh, a young man playing in a band in Pennsylvania, uh, we would go to 48th Street in New York. Of course, yeah. The mecca of, of guitar stores, of, of music stores. <laughs> yeah. And I remember buying an old con strobe tuner from Manny's. Uh-huh. And it broke. So about six weeks later, I went back, and Henry himself, Henry Goldstein, uh-huh. came and got it and treated me like I was Jimi Hendrix, even though I was a kid from the sticks. <laughs> right. Yeah, he treated me so well that I remember till this day. And and I'll tell you know it's one of those things where it's like this guy didn't have to. He didn't have to go out of his way, and he did. And it's one of those examples of customer service. It's like it left a, a lasting impression on me. And think of all the aspiring. I mean, I love like I've become pretty friendly with Rick Nielsen. I mean, his father owned a shop in Rockford. He grew up in the business. Every time Rick goes into a store, all he thinks about is his family's livelihood, like running it. And you've got a lot of examples of that. I think uh, Ben Harper's mom owns a store. Like you can see people that have made it. And their ties to either their first music store or some family, Joe Bonamassa, he's got like family in the, in the in guitar business. Everyone has a story about their first music store experience, their first purchase. And, and it's, it's really cool. It's part of the folklore, but it's not dead. I'll tell you, there's a band, um, a very popular band, played the United Center in Chicago last week, Mumford & Sons. Oh, sure. They're uh, as global as you can get. They've got to be going to music stores in every city, but they come to Chicago Music Exchange every time they're in town. They spend hours there. They walk out with gear. And I could, I could tell you thousands and thousands of stories of young musicians and old musicians alike that still have an appreciation for going in and talking to other musicians and falling in love with instruments through that experience. So I'm, I'm encouraged that it's here to stay. Who is the average buyer on Reverb? The average buyer, you know, we've got um, 
we've got a pretty large customer base, so it's hard to sort of uh, identify a persona. But I'll give you some. I'll share with you some some high level data. So our average order is around three hundred dollars. So that means we're selling a lot of eighty dollar pedals and a lot of two thousand dollar Taylor guitars as well, and a lot of chord keyboards and a lot of microphones, AKG microphones, and all of the above. But in general, probably around sixty five percent of our of our customers are what we call in the guitar category, uh, guitar, bass, acoustic, amplifier, or effects pedals. 60 to 65% of our orders and revenue comes from that segment. So if I had to generalize, I would say there is, uh, there's a little bit of a bias towards um, a guitarist. Guitarists are generally buying multiple instruments. Um, but when we talk about genre, that's where we're really focused on on diversity and not, you know, it started off as a more of a classic rock blues type uh, customer base. But when I, I see, you know, and all the, you know, going to more of a metal shredder base all the way to bluegrass to we have classical musicians, we have, a, you know, a lot of brass and jazz stuff. So. It's um, our goal is to be as diverse as possible. Our our goal is to grow our our female base as well. It's still heavily male dominated, probably in the high seventy percent. But we uh, we we see a huge growth segment in uh, female artists, and we're really excited to be um, to be a leader in encouraging more women to uh, to be less intimidated. I'd say your typical um, music store can be very intimidating to an inexperienced or newer musician or a female musician. And we want to make Reverb uh, really inclusive across a wide range of, of future musicians. I think Fender put out a survey, or the results of a survey recently that said that 50% of their recent buyers were female. Isn't that incredible? 50%. Yeah. Now, most of them are acoustic guitar, but nonetheless, there were still customers. So that's, that's great. That's really great. Yeah. We're really excited about that as well. Yeah. What's the most expensive item that was ever bought or sold? We've had a couple Les Paul bursts. The holy grail of vintage guitars is a 58, 59, 60 um, Gibson Les Paul. So we've had, we've had actually probably a dozen or so um, bursts sell in the two to $250,000 range. Now we cap our fee at $350. So um, we don't, we're not really incented like an auction house to, you know, drive up the price on that. We, uh, you know, the other typical thing of, of reverb is probably around 30% of our transactions are negotiated, just like you would in a store. Huh. There's a whole offer system and messaging going back and forth. And, and people are, um, you know, people are haggling just like they, like they did on 48th Street. Yeah. And that's kind of what, what makes reverb uh, attractive to people. So, when we get to these high end, you know, let's call it $250,000 less Pauls. I think that's the top of the market. Okay. I looked at reverb sites before and I thought that was really cool. It was very easy to traverse and I could see how it'd be easy for a music store, especially one that's not particularly online savvy to get up and running. So that's, that's great. Uh, how long has that been going? That's been a little over a year, year and a half now. We've got you know, hundreds, hundreds, actually thousands of, of customers using it, but actively probably more like three to 400 active sites that are, uh, that are running on reverb sites as part of their, uh, their reverb experience. So yeah, we're, we're really committed to that and helping grow those businesses and spending a lot of money building a custom website can be very, very costly for a typical dealer. 
there's another element to our business, which is direct to consumer. So when we think of the business, you know, you and I, we could talk about Fender and Gibson and Martin and Ludwig and Roland. But the cool, most interesting segment is boutique makers, people, small pedal manufacturers, small base manufacturers, um, people that are making electronic uh, um, modular uh, racks and and things like that, and even boutique microphone makers. So what Reverb does is we allow some of these vendors that would never get a chance at NAM to get into thousands of dealer shops. We allow them to actually sell direct. So there's this this whole maker audience of people that are making products, and Reverb is an outlet for them to actually reach customers without having to actually involve a dealer. I know there's a lot of politics involved in that in terms of if you do have dealers and then you're trying to go direct. Do you have a policy against that, just out of curiosity? The suppliers that support their dealers don't typically sell on Reverb Direct. Um, that's just not good business for them. But a lot of them do sell direct. Like for instance, Fender does sell direct and they have thousands of dealers that, that carry their product in the last two, three years, that's become more of a trend of the larger dealers that are still selling direct. They do a very small percentage of their business direct. So, um, it's kind of silly at times, but, um, there is that segment we don't really police it if someone wants to sell direct or if they or if it's a dealer it's you know we're free market and we, we're not there to um uphold a dealer agreement but the supplier is in control of the situation the extent that we police it is that if you were selling an authorized new gibson guitar you need to be an authorized gibson dealer hmm. we don't want anyone selling something that's not truly an authorized dealer if you're selling a used gibson guitar you don't have to have any credentials of that nature sure where is reverb going in the future you know a lot of our growth um is really focused on this uh, on the international opportunities i really as i was mentioning to you about the liquidity about what's the fair price for a taylor 814 from 2012 um the the way you get to a fair price is what's the fair price in tokyo and what's the fair price in los angeles and what's the fair price in berlin we really see the um the opportunity to move instruments globally um, in ways that they're not doing right now. So we've got offices in Amsterdam. We've got around 15 people over in Europe um, helping spread the word. We just launched offices in Japan, and we're um, we're working on you know expanding uh, our capabilities there, um, taking our content and making sure that it's it's both personalized and localized in all these markets. So we still see a a large opportunity to continue doing what we're doing. We'll do almost 700 million in sales this year on on the Reaver platform. And we see Reverb growing to well over $2 billion over the next three to four years, um, just doing exactly what we're doing, just interacting with more musicians in more markets. That's pretty awesome. David, what's one thing that people don't know about Reverb that you wish they knew? What's one thing? Um, one thing is that we, we have, um, you, you probably expect this, but you wouldn't know, but like behind the curtain, I mean, we have a culture of people that are really, really passionate and excited about uh, this mission of making the world a more musical place. Because at the end of the day, what Reverb's comprised of is we have software engineers, we have marketing experts and content people, and we have customer service. So we're helping people, we're resolving problems, we're building trust with our customers, we're building really good software, world-class 
software for a marketplace platform. But at the end of the day, you know, people come to work in a workforce of millennials that, you know, really are driven on purpose. And the purpose that, that drives us most is that when two musicians exchange an instrument over the internet, that we're making the world more musical and that we're hopefully bringing smiles to people's faces. And those people are going out and making music for other people or playing in a band and, you know, making the world more musical, a little bit more happy, dealing with some of the, you know, negativity in our, in our daily Twitter feed. <laughs> we feel good about our mission. Last question, David. You're distinctly qualified, I think, to answer this. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? Well, that's really easy, actually. You know, it's not the idea. I talk to a lot of people, um, friends and peers who are stuck in a career that they're not thrilled with or happy and they have great ideas. I had that idea. If I only had this idea, what's this idea? And I, I haven't built my business on super unique ideas. I built um, three, four businesses on execution, day in, day out, having clarity. And when I, I, I talk about execution a lot, and I, I really believe in it, it's having a visualization of where you want to be, both in life and in business, but let's just focus on businesses, having, being able to visualize. And when I visualize, I can visualize what the website looks like. I can visualize the office. I can visualize what it means to have five customer service reps, or what does it mean to have 50? What does it mean to have an Amsterdam office? How are they talking to each other? The ability to visualize what your business looks like in 2020, 21, 22 is, to me, the only way you can achieve that. Visualization is a very, very powerful tool. I spend a lot of time visualizing where we want the business and the product to be and then executing on that and sharing that visualization with as many people as possible. And the more people that can see it, feel it, experience it, the easier it is to execute on it. So execution and visualization. Very cool. Thanks, David. This has been great. You can check out some fine used gear and learn more about David and Reverb at Reverb.com. That's Reverb.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 